Okay, good afternoon. Uh, this is Michael Muse with Sony Global International Interviews. We're here at the Newberry Library in beautiful downtown Chicago, speaking with Dick Longwood, who has a new book out entitled Cut in the Middle, uh, The Globalization Crisis for Middle America. And we're just talking to him about a lot of the points that he brings up in his new book. Um, Dick, first I want to ask you some things about technology and technology firms here in the Midwest. Uh, you liken the Midwest 100 years ago with the Silicon Valley today. How so? Um, we were the area of all the um, new ideas, the good ideas, the backyard tinkers, the guys in the garages and basements who came up with all these ideas. My brothers, Ford, Old Pinkin, Goodrich, Deer, um, everybody, well, 100, 150 years ago. If a new idea was born in the United States and found root here and became a great commercial success, it happened right here in the, in the Midwest, just like happening in uh, Silicon Valley over the past 125 years. Our problem, basically, as I point out in the book, is that these, these really were good ideas. And they built big companies, and we've been living on them ever since. And um, living on them really so successfully, supporting generations of workers, of businesses, of cities, um, and we haven't had to have any more good ideas. Uh, the old ones were good enough, and we got out of the habit. It's not, it's not as simple as that. We got out of the lack of innovation. And other parts of the country took that over. Um, there was a review of my book by the Seattle Post Intelligence, and they, they talked about this. They said, pointed out that a lot of the Midwestern cities, um, once, you know, their good ideas go away, once uh, the time plays out, the factories close down, that um, they can't figure out what to do next. Whereas in Seattle and Pacific Northwest, they have something collapses, people say, right, what do we do now? And they come up with uh, something new. We have lost this mass, and we're going to survive. We desperately need to recover it. Okay. Well, and, and furthering on the technology aspect, um, Chicago is somewhat renowned for being the longest or the biggest connection point for Internet connectivity in the world. Mm -hmm. In other words, the most bits and bytes that flow through Chicago. Um, what role does that play in Chicago's Midwest competitiveness? Uh, well, that's a big deal. Um, in global economy, in the knowledge economy, connectivity, communications are everything. I mean, physical stuff like O'Hare, the railroads, all that. <coughs> it's um, information, digital stuff, uh, just um, um, transmission points for the, for the Internet. There's a huge advantage for us. We have a lot of fiber optics flowing through here. We're very much connected. It's like, you know, having an airport with lots of non-stop flights to around the world. You're in, you're in connection. You're in contact with the rest of the world. If you have this uh, digital communication, you're in contact with the rest of the world. If you don't got it, you're not. You're out. You're out of the conversation. So uh, Chicago's in pretty good shape. It's interesting, of course, to note that one thing follows on another. We had the railroad. Mm -hmm. Telephone lines were laid along the railroad. The internet goes along the lines of the telephone lines. One technology leads to another. We do we are building on the past uh, in this area and in the others. Now, but when you talk about the advantages and benefits, in other words, is it creating jobs? Is it 
uh, leading to greater skills that help people move forward in the economy? Are there other benefits that you can help with? Well, all those things. Yes, it does create jobs. Um, if you own if you own a company, mm -hmm. that absolutely depends on you know access to top flight fiber optics, the sort of speed and the capacity that it has. You are going to, you want to set up business someplace that has that sort of access. Just like if you have a company that um, depends on international freight for travel and business meetings, things like that, you're going to want to be near O'Hare. All these things. Bring in business, create businesses, enable businesses to go. It puts you in touch with other people who are thinking the same thing, other businesses, the creative people, the innovators, the design people, um, are also going to be in a city like Chicago that has these sorts of things. And you bounce your ideas off them, they bounce their ideas off you, and you both grow in the process and create jobs. Schools should benefit, certainly our universities do. Um, this is one argument that is made for spreading the fiber optic network throughout the rest of the city, which we haven't done. We think it's with me and the South Street and some around O'Hare. Um, there's a school of thought that says that you want to extend this to every police station, fire station in the city uh, for security, disaster reaction, um, anti-terrorism purposes, but also uh, extend it to every school and library in the city. This means that all your kids have access to this, that all neighborhoods have access to it, and also um, the stuff runs out down your uh, street. If you're going to build a house, it helps to be right on the street because you can build your own house, it doesn't cost you very much. If you want to set up a business, it helps to be right near communication, it doesn't cost you very much to uh, get in. Okay, and I guess to contrast that with a lot of the rest of the rural Midwest, it's not as connected. Mm -hmm. Any suggestions or recommendations how to get it connected? Is DSL reasonable, cable, satellite, anything that you found that leads to a recommendation for one as opposed to the other? There's a couple of organizations in Illinois that are trying to uh, get fiber optic access to the rest of the state. Um, the general figures, I think, something like 35 the rural areas, about 30 35 percent less, uh, less internet access and digital access than urban areas, which really does make a difference. If you're out there, you are much less likely to be uh, logged out. Mm -hmm. And um, if you're not, of course, you are logged out of the um, global uh, conversation. Now, this helps a lot. There has been a lot of talk about distance learning, about um, spreading communication facilities to rural areas, which is fine as far as it goes. You still out there, you're pretty much on your lonesome. One thing we're finding out about the uh, global economy is it does congregate in cities simply because people want to be together. Communications are fine so far as they go. Um, you know, you can be in a lot of different places, keep up with how your stock's getting there, who's up or who's down, or, you know, who merged or who, who broke up, that sort of thing. That, but that's kind of news you get on Bloomsburg or Reuters. There's another sort of um, information, which is, you know, what are your stocks going to do tomorrow? Who's going to be up? Who's going to be down? What happens? Well, that kind of cutting edge thing. What is new? What is latest? 
And there's a lot of evidence that really gets that face to face. Now, the people, your global movers and shakers, do want to be in a city with all these communications. They live and die by them. But there's more than than that. They want to meet other people like them. They want to talk to them. They want to bounce their ideas and their brains off of each other. <coughs> and this does happen in cities. It does not happen in rural areas. Virtually, by virtue of being in a rural area, you're already two or three steps behind the game. That, that's what. And rural areas are probably going to be lagging behind uh, this global conversation all the way, and therefore a uh, considerable disadvantage in taking advantage of the global economy. Okay. And I guess turning to another kind of technology, I believe in your book you say that biomass is a better solution to help the economy than ethanol. Wow. Um, first off, uh, ethanol, corn, corn-based ethanol. Uh, there's a limit to how much you can do. Um, if we get, I'm sorry, I should have a book here, I can get the exact figures. But at max, corn-based ethanol is going to substitute for about 13, 15% of our energy use. Uh, there's a good deal of evidence that this information in this ethanol um, uses up a lot of energy on its own. But, um, Doing this, getting to this level, is going to do something that one would have thought was impossible, which is create a corn shortage in Iowa. <laughs> um, there's not that much corn. And if you grow that much corn, you do precisely what's happening now. There's a specific demand. Price of corn is going up. Price of land is going up. We see there's something of a worldwide food crisis as this drives the price of some food around, around the world, but also cut into our exports. We do see a lot of the world with our exports, especially corn and soybeans, <coughs> and um, we are cutting out people who depend on this, and we're also losing some markets out there. By the time maybe that the ethanol boom runs its course, if it's a bubble, as a lot of people think it does, it is, uh, when it pops, we're going to find that we may have lost a lot of those um, export markets. Biomass basically is anything you burn. That is very gas, rich grass, it's trash of various sorts, <coughs> it's stalks, it's the hard stuff. A kernel of corn is soft. And it's really easy to get in there and get that sweetness, that calorie, the stuff that burns and stuff that makes the ethanol milker. Getting ethanol is really, really basic stuff. Uh, getting at the stuff inside stalks or wasting wood or something like that, the calories are in there to make energy, stuff to burn, but it's hard. Mm-hmm. And to break through the cells that contain this, what we call cellulosic ethanol. Uh, that, that's the real biomass. And there is an awful lot of this stuff around us. This goes wild, you don't have to depend on a crop or two. And <clears throat> that probably really would replace a lot of um, our uh, dependence on solar-based fossil-based uh, uh, fuels. Mm-hmm. But um, to get at that, that's tricky. We know how to do it. We just don't know how to do it economically. And we are not at the point, no matter oil is going up, corn is going up, we're still not at that point where you can do it economically. Okay. Thank you.
Now, being in the Midwest, we also have the advantage of the Great Lakes, and it was access to a lot of fresh water. Oh boy. How can we leverage that? We have just begun to think about this. Uh, we've done a bad job on this. We just sit there and look at this, these lakes and use them over the years. We've polluted them. We've pretty much stopped doing that. Use them for some uh, recreation. Chicago turn the Chicago River around and divert some more water from the lakes than we should. But it doesn't make that much difference. But we are suddenly waking up to the fact that, yes, we have something like 20% of the world's fresh water supplies. <coughs> if you look at the news from the southwest and the south, where they're drying up out there, and you realize in about 20 years, if you're a business person and you're going to want to set up a factory that relies on a reliable source of fresh water, there's only going to be one place to do it, and that's here. So this thing is a great big asset. Um, so far, we've been pretty steep about this. We, there is nothing that says the federal government can come along and say, hey, Las Vegas and Phoenix need this water. We're going to put a giant straw in and stuff the old heart and get this water out there. Now, the economics of this are pretty fierce, just getting this done. But still, it is possible. <coughs> there is a act of Congress that says you can't do this. It's the Great Lakes State or the, the areas within the watershed, Great Lakes watershed, control what can be diverted. Now, this has never been tested in courts, but it's probably been constitutional. Water is an item in trade, and this is probably the standard of trade. Okay, we've done something. The Great Lakes states, with some help from Quebec and Ontario, have just set up something called the Compact, which does pretty much the same thing. But courts traditionally have been very loath <coughs> to overturn uh, con uh, compacts between states. They have sort of special legal status. Yeah, it took us years and years and years and years of fighting to get this compact written. Now we have got to ratify it. So far, so far as I know, only four states have ratified it. Minnesota, Illinois, Indiana, which is quite surprised, and um, New York. You still have the other Great Lakes states to ratify it. Until it's ratified, it has no force of law. So we are still vulnerable to the rest of the nation demanding our water. Like I say, the cost and the technology involved is <coughs> so prohibitive, it probably won't happen. Pretty good. Mm -hmm. Okay. I guess the map of the technology that I wanted to talk about, uh, nanotech is growing here in the Midwest. Can that be a driver for economic growth as well? It's growing somewhat in the Midwest. Uh, we haven't done quite as uh, well on this as other parts of the country. This is like, say, biotech or bioscience. Um, We've got lots of plants, lots of animals, so we ought to be ahead in bioscience. We aren't. Mm -hmm. We really know how to, we know materials here in the Midwest, so we ought to be ahead in nanotech, too. And we're just beginning to catch up on that. But there's a lot of interest in this. I was in places, Dayton, Ohio, for example. Uh, Dayton, Stratton, is back. That's Delphi. And all the parts and all that. Delphi is close enough in Dayton. And they just had a lot of other problems, but they have worked in materials all their life and make them. So they know material. So they're thinking maybe we can build on this to um, uh, create a nanotech industry. And the two universities in um, Dayton, uh, Wright State and Dayton University, University of Dayton, are both working with companies there to do see what they can do. 
This is kind of going on in other places. Athens, for tire capital of the world. They're not making the tires in Athens anymore. But the tire companies have worked with the University of Athens, and this has got somewhat of a little polymer industry uh, going up there. Um, I think a lot of Midwestern cities that are really losing their source of income, this original Silicon Valley stuff that kept us rich for all those years, cities that are losing that, they're going to lose it. It's going to go away. But they have to stop and say to themselves, what do we know how to do? What will we get at? Like tires or material? And is there a role for us in this new world? That's not the Yes. Um, moving on to a couple more specific Midwest topics. NAFTA was mentioned as the big bugaboo in a lot of places you visited. But if NAFTA is such a big bugaboo, it seems like we should be seeing a lot more products and services from Canada, but it doesn't seem like we have. NAFTA has its flaws. Any free trade compact between countries of radically different levels of development always going to be a problem. The EU people have learned this from these different countries like Greece and Portugal. They have to pump a ton of money into these countries to try to bring their economies up. Otherwise, it doesn't work. The trade arrangements with Mexico haven't worked all that well. But you're right. Going around the Midwest, I asked uh, workers, doctor managers, college officials, and others, you know, what the problem is. What, what, what they would call the problem. Everybody says, NAFTA. One word answer. It's not about NAFTA. NAFTA. And obviously, uh, Obama and Clinton and their campaign were listening because they caught that too. And that's the basis of a lot of their anti-NAFTA things. When I got to thinking about this and I realized that NAFTA, for all its flaws, uh, you know, it's just a little old trade treaty and that's an awful lot of blame for one little old treaty <coughs> to take. And what I think I was here is the people were telling me, just like we were telling Clinton and Obama, that something is happening to our lives and we don't like it very much. What's happening, of course, is this whole phenomenon of globalization, which has tossed the Midwest right up in the air. Globalization is a great, big, complicated thing, international finance, foreign direct investments and communications, and all this sort of stuff. It's too big to get your arms and your head around. So when people say nothing, this is a shorthand for everything that is happening here. And that's the way I take it. And um, I think um, you know, whoever is the next president can go out and fix NAFTA if NAFTA is fixable, or they can take the broad view and say we're in a new economy and it is affecting our nation in terms of the U.S. very directly, and we've got to start thinking big. Briefly, what is the Kalamazoo plan, and why aren't other communities making similar plans? Well, they are, they are. Kalamazoo Province is very interesting. Kalamazoo <coughs> have, um, well, they have other types of drugs, drugs, things like that, um, pharmaceuticals, moved out. Kalamazoo is really in trouble. Kalamazoo, though, retains a few wealthy families, like a lot of these places do, that are committed to the city. <coughs> uh, one family that loses Stryker family, which was environmentally. Anyhow, they they don't want their names attached to this bill. They kind of know who they are. But they announced that any kid who graduates from high school, from Kalamazoo High School, will get a four-year ride to any public university in the state of Michigan. 
What happened, the first thing that happened then, is that everybody been moving out of Kalamazoo moved back in because they wanted their kids to go to high school. The second thing that happened was all these people needed a place to live, so you had a boom in construction and other industries. The third thing that happened was a lot of stores uh, opened up to serve them, and suddenly you've got a boom in Kalamazoo simply because of this Kalamazoo promise. Other places are looking at certain Iowa, which Washington Tech is looking at it, <coughs> trying to figure out public financing. The Quad Cities here in Illinois and Iowa are looking at it, uh, thinking possibly of sales tax. Other places are looking at it. I um, did a little back of the envelope math one day to see how much it cost to do it in Chicago and discovered we could build several running parks for what it would cost, so it's probably beyond us. But no, a lot of other communities are doing it. So far, none with a success. In fact, I don't think it's installed anywhere. Yeah, it's, it's, it's possible there. Now, one other thing. In Warsaw, Indiana, they built a medical device cluster that's been very successful. Mm -hmm. Is there some reason we haven't emulated that more? These things kind of happen. Um, there was a guy named Dupree who came down from Michigan hundred years or so ago and set up a factory making wooden splits for broken arms because they had a lot of wood around Warsaw, Indiana. And that grew into Dupree, which was the first big orthopedics company, orthopedics stage, um, uh, artificial knees, artificial hips, and all that sort of stuff. Baby women are going to need because they've waited for the past 30 years jogging. Uh, I'm a runner, so okay. I keep picking okay. on a job. Okay, well, you're, you're probably going to uh, give uh, Wilson Indiana some business. Well, I have 3D activities. Okay, okay. Um, the police salesman, a guy named Zimmer, got mad, spun off and opened up his own company. A couple of other guys who were working for Zimmer spun off and opened up Biomax. So you have these three companies that kind of grew up over time. Um, this has spun off other companies. One thing that was mentioned to me. There's a headhunting company there that specializes in um, uh, biomedical uh, companies and jobs like that. They're headquartered there. Um, <clears throat> if you are a PhD that specializes in artificial gifts and you offer you a job in Warsaw, you're probably going to go there because if it doesn't work out at the company that you're working for, there's another company down the street that would probably hire you. So they have something going, and I don't think they sat down and said, we're going to create a cluster. Things tend to happen. East River Falls up in Minnesota is another example. They've got one natural resource, and that's snow. And there's a guy up there who, he founded Arctic, what's the name of the snowmobile company, Arctic Cat, and then there's Snow Cat, and there are several other, uh, it's the snowmobile capital of the world. And they, and they know snow. So you can do this. Um, San Diego had the uh, University of California, San Diego, which was sending off things, but also started a bunch of companies. Oh, I'm doing very well. A couple of them did, and that started this cluster that goes on around there. You think about clusters. Clusters are wonderful things. Uh, but it's not something you can really plan. You just invest in a lot of different stuff. <coughs> make a place hospitable to doing business and then uh, hope for the best. Okay. Now, um, moving on to just a couple of management issues. Looking back, who do you think is responsible for the global history and also the future 
of the Midwest? Is it more the government leaders, business leaders, or labor leaders who led us down this path and hopefully can lead us out as well? Uh, probably not a little bit. What I found when I go and go around the Midwest, I was astonished that we are split up in these little state-based pieces. We, all of our thinking is confined by state borders because our main intellectual centers are the big state universities. All our politics are confined by state borders because we're dominated by state governments. And states are simply too small and too parochial to compete in a globalized world. Still, these states compete each other with each other fanatically, you know, combating for factories, combating for um, investment. No, Indiana's not competing with Illinois anymore. We're all competing with China, or Eastern Europe, or Brazil, or wherever, but we still compete with each other. State governments are probably incompetent to take the leadership on this. First off, they are confined by nature to their borders and their territory, and really are not paid to think beyond our state lines. Uh, secondly, they are so bogged down by the legacy of the industrial age, the unemployment, the dying cities, the downfield sites, the dying rural areas, <coughs> that they are spending all the time running, trying to prop this up, trying to make things whole for places, trying to get in you know, prisons or casinos or something like that. But they really can't concentrate on the needs of the future the economy. They're like uh, urban infrastructure or education, that sort of thing. Uh, the federal government can help, but let's say that we're losing population and hence both in comparison to the rest of the country. So we're not, even if Obama was presidency, we're probably not likely to get all that much attention from Washington. What's the solution? Um, the economy couldn't care less about state lines. The economy spreads Dolls, everywhere it goes. You have what's called mega cities, if you want to use Richard Florida's phrase. You have megalopolises, as Robert Lang talks about. Um, an example being this corridor of industry, at least off Minneapolis to Madison and Milwaukee to Chicago. <coughs> what Florida talks about, the mega city from Chicago through Northern Indiana and Ohio to Pittsburgh. I like to talk about the Chicago economic region. And we always think about ourselves in our six power counties. This region starts north of Milwaukee and heads down through the scene in Kenosha and down through here and over into northern Indiana, all the way to um, uh, South Bend and on up to Grand Rapids. This is a four state area, but we never think of it that way. Yes, so who can cooperate here? Universities can shake off their state based thinking and do a lot of cooperating. Economic Development Associations. I'm not talking necessarily Chambers of Commerce, but Economic Development Associations. Um, businesses, to some degree, corporations hate to get out front when it's something political like this. But in most cities, you find organizations, World Business Chicago, or the Civic Committee here, um, right place up in um, Grand Rapids, uh, M7 up in uh, Milwaukee, a couple of other organizations. Um, the ITASCA partnership in Minneapolis, uh, the Des Moines partnership in Des Moines. Almost all cities have these organizations. And they're thinking across state lines. 
in all these places. Minneapolis, for instance, falls into Wisconsin. Uh, St. Louis falls into Illinois. Um, Cleveland and Pittsburgh are talking about the possibility of setting up a joint airport. Um, economies cross state lines. Our politics and our thinking so far relevant. So how can we, um, how, how can we get regional on this? States don't cut it anymore. Gotcha. Um, and let me go in the other direction. These days with internet connectivity and, and instant communication, in a sense that means geography is less important. So why is geography even important anymore? Or is it important? Um, it is important because um, people want to come together. It's face-to-face communication in this global era is so important and it's happening. This is not theoretical to see it happening in the great global city. Scotland's one of Minneapolis is another. Certainly in places like New York and London and Paris and Tokyo and Shanghai. These places are becoming more crowded, not less crowded. Theoretically, we could all go out and sit beside a nice lake somewhere where the air is pure and do all our business. That's not what's happening. Given the horrors of air travel, Problems with airlines, old hair, security problems, all that. Who would want to go into business travel? Yet business travel is growing. There, there's a reason. People want to come together. So geography, in some sense, is less important. Yes, the routine stuff is being scattered out across the globe. The cutting edge stuff, which is really what we're going to get into if we want to survive, because routine stuff is being outsourced. The cutting edge stuff happens in the cities or in metro areas. Chicago is great, but there's, you know, there's room for this sort of process at other um, smaller cities in Indianapolis, Milwaukee, Columbus, places like that. Um, I was in the Quad Cities last week, and they're really trying to figure out how they can get on it. They have a couple of small universities, uh, large colleges, and one of the university grants there. They have a great deal of expertise. They've got a couple of local companies, John Deere in particular, that while moving more of their manufacturing overseas and then committed to the community. So they have assets. How can they plug themselves into this global conversation? They very much consider this. Okay. Um, now, moving on to some human capital issues. You mentioned in the book that a lot of these companies don't even have international departments anymore. But if that's the case, how are we going to learn how to sell to the rest of the world? A lot of this is outsourced. So what, what I meant was back in the old days of multinational corporations, remember them? Uh, uh-huh. We had a big international department. There was a vice president for international relations. And uh, every once in a while, we'd go to O'Hare and get on a plane and go visit his factory in Mexico or China or Germany or somewhere, and then he'd come home. And I was lost much of the empire as there was. Well, this day, all operations can be outsourced. Are being outsourced. This includes sales, R&D, accounting, all this sort of stuff, whatever it makes uh, the most sense. These corporations truly are global. They do need central services, uh, people who know global law, accounting, consulting. Chicago happens to be very well fixed for people like that, which is one basis for our recovery. You have uh, people here who know about selling abroad. You also, um, in this day and age, 
Um, if you're in China, you're really in China. You, uh, you have contact with people in China. You know how to sell in China. And presumably, your Chinese operation is going to do all that. You don't, you don't handle sales in China out of Chicago. You handle it out of Kwanzaa or China. Now, you also mentioned a lack of creativity. In other words, not coming up with those big ideas as you have in a historical sense. But we have a lot of advertising agencies here. Chicago in the Midwest is one of the middle market capitals mm-hmm. of the country. Um, how are we lacking in creativity? Um, the view from Chicago, this is what I learned <coughs> in traveling around on this book, is the view from Chicago is really deceptive. Chicago, Lord knows, has its problems. We all know what they are, the schools, the inner city, the CTA. Uh, we, we, we've got big problems, but basically, we have turned that corner. We've left our industrial heritage behind us and have become a global city with the creative minds that you're talking about. <coughs> um, it is interesting, the city in the United States for the greatest percentage of its young people living in the center of the city um, is um, Las Vegas. That the city in the United States for the greatest percentage of young people living centrally who have college education in Chicago. We are drawing in people, largely from all around the Midwest. We are a magnet for this question if they have get married and have kids and move back to the suburbs. But in the meantime, no, we are drawing in the brain to have a great deal of creativity. Um, it was just scholarly we were talking about. Uh, it, it'd be okay. We're not doing that. What happened? And Milwaukee and Cleveland and St. Louis and Detroit, not to mention the oldest cities like Stanford Gary, or the cities like Waterloo or Danville or Decatur or Galesburg or Anderson or Muncie or Dayton, all these places that are dying and don't have the creativity, how can they regain this? Some places, Waterloo, Iowa, is an interesting place, they don't play their advertising industry doing that. Um, so there may be little clusters of this. <clears throat> but basically, we are the descendants of a few really good ideas. And those ideas have played out and, you know, Midwest by and large, is not coming up with such ideas. How do we do Once we do it, how do we finance it? The second question, venture capital, we ain't got it. Well, if we, if we don't got it, we're not using it, we've got it, but we're not using it very well. The figure, I believe, is that 21% of all the NIH grants from the nation go to Midwestern institutions. That's pretty good. That's not our share. We have 4% of the venture capital pool in the nation. So if one of those grants spins off a really good idea, it's probably going to have to go to California and be explained. It's the common consent. That is, yeah. And yeah. Um, there's a lot of Chicago area folks who complain about the lack of venture capital. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, that's a big problem. Mm-hmm. You know, you also promote a Midwest think tank uh, to integrate local interests with global interests. How will that help? catalyze the economy. Just going around the Midwest and talking with people, I spent so much time talking to somebody who knows everything there is know about Indiana. I'm far to say what's going on in Ohio or Michigan. You've got people who are true experts on Minnesota. 
who don't know anything about Wisconsin or Iowa. There is no regional thinking here, yet we are all in the same boat. This is one of the points in my book, is that the rival of the global economy I expected to move that more or less reasonably because what we do for a living, which is farming and heavy industry, is being affected all the way from Ohio to Iowa. So we are all in the same boat we don't know it. We're not talking to each other. This confinement of politics and intellectual life within state borders that I was talking about really keeps this conversation from flowing. And somebody in Peoria might have a really good idea that the folks in Dayton could use, but there's no way for them to get together. A Midwest think tank, or a forum, or what have you, it could be no more than just a table where people could come together. There are people in my discovery that are coming out of the Midwest asking because of this book. People all over the Midwest are asking these questions. They realize that something new is happening. They're working in their own little areas, but they have no contact with other people that might be going to help them. So why not set up a central forum probably here in Chicago, not to take over what these people are doing or tell them what to do or say, hey, you got to invest in bioscience. No. Just a place where people can come together and work together on money, on these, on these problems. Uh, to encourage people from universities to explore how universities can work together. Uh, to encourage cities old like Cleveland and Grand Rapids and Peoria and Kansas City. All kinds of a lot of the future on healthcare and health research. They're beginning on their own. They ought to be talking together. There's no place for them to talk together, but no place. You know, you also mentioned Enron, the Midwest Research University Network. Mm -hmm. Is that an example of, of this? Or? It's an example. It's a very, very small thing. There's a guy at the University of Wisconsin named Alan Dines, D-I-N-E-S, um, who runs Enron, not to be confused with Enron. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> this is... Um, the Big Ten University, plus the University of Chicago, plus some other major research universities like Iowa State, plus some other major research institutions like Mayo or Argonne or Cleveland Clinic. Um, bringing them together in a network in which they can show off their good ideas to venture capitalists. Have, instead of having each of them going out and trying to find a venture capitalist and having their idea, saying, hey, next week in Minneapolis or in Columbus or Chicago, we're going to have a big show for these ideas, and all these institutions will meet there, and your venture capitalists and investing in this sort of thing, or financer, <coughs> come and we'll show this off. Um, it's, Alan runs this really on a shoestring. Um, he's involved with this uh, technology transfer process in Madison, which is probably more successful at doing this than any other school uh, city in the Midwest. So he knows something about this, but it's just a matter of bringing people together to cooperate as become universities ought to, to try and generate the ideas and commercialize the ideas. That, you know, this might be something that would face on the Western economy. Can you think of any success stories, for example? Nope, nope, it's, it's, it's brand new. I cited it in the book. I tried not to make too big a deal out of it, because he doesn't. 
Um, it is brand new. It's just it's an example of the things that we ought to be doing in cooperating across state lines. And unfortunately, one of the best examples I can come up with was this very small legend. You're asking the right questions. You also talk about immigration in the book, and I just like to bring it up in a little bit different context. The strong side of immigration is getting a lot of the well-educated Asians, Indians, Chinese. Are they coming to the Midwest, and are we benefiting from their immigration bit? Uh, yes and yes. Um, we have a lot of engineering schools, science schools. If you go talk to them, they'll all tell you that you know, the majority of their students are Asian. So we are getting them. Um, post 9-11, security, <coughs> immigration, things are lost. And it really hurt, although that, that's beginning to work out. Um, one issue is, how do we keep them? Again, these are people coming up with good ideas. Whether you're going to California or increasingly going back to China or India to exploit them. How do we keep them? There is a backlash here in the U.S. against these people, a sort of a populist backlash against immigration in general, where people look at these universities and say, you know, why are we educating all these foreigners? Why don't we educate our own people? Well, these foreigners just might be our future. That's right. <laughs> so, um, yes, we are getting a lot of them. Uh, we need more. We're not keeping them in the way that we ought to. Well, uh, there's anything we can do to do that. That, of course, is not the end of it. That's, that's the topic. Um, the lower end, often exemplified by Mexican laborers, Hispanics in general, are every bit as much needed. Um, I think you made a good argument that the Mexican immigrants here in Chicago in the 1970s say has pretty much saved this city. I mean, the new life, the money, is almost depleting now the 26th people and the second biggest shopping street in Chicago after Michigan Avenue. Um, new houses, a lot of construction, businesses, things like this. Yeah, it's not out as much PhDs avoid the energy they bring. I was in Cleveland, which once was more than 50% foreign born at a time when Cleveland was one of the richest cities in America. Now it's less than 5%. And as the man in Cleveland told me, he says, we can't even get illegal immigrants here. <laughs> immigrants go where there are jobs. If you are a successful city, if you have jobs and economy, Immigrants are going to go there these days. I mean, it just isn't happening. If you are not a successful city, you are not getting immigrants. Immigrants are almost a sign of success and they're a cause of success. Chicken and the egg. On top of that, you have much of the Midwest is losing population. We are really dying out. Um, but the places that are growing are these outside metro areas are these small middle-eastern towns that are least hacking towns that are drawing in uh, in Mexican immigrants. It's a big political problem. Most of them are illegal or undocumented, if you will. <coughs> um, they're moving into very conservative blue-collar areas, often the most whitest and most homogeneous parts of the United States. Sounds like a real recipe for trouble. I found in most of these towns that people are sitting down and saying, hey, you know, this 
if you're not going to die, you need these people. It's a problem, especially with schools, what with health care, police, and stuff like that. How are we going to deal with it? And our, these are not sophisticated communities, but they're dealing with it in a very serious and responsible and determined way, trying to integrate uh, these their new neighbors, make late neighbors of them. Uh, it's not easy, and it's not helped at all by the new jobs types in the state capital that are doing the uh, immigration law. Gotcha. Okay. Well, now, I mean, just taking a look at the Midwest, everything that you describe, I'm sure, is true, but I wonder how is the Midwest different from, say, the rural parts of the Southeast, some of the Great Plains, the West? Is the Midwest really all that different from some of these other regions? Or are they suffering from the same things the Midwest is? Um, to a degree, um, it's interesting that quite often throughout American history, what happens to the country, especially economically, happens to the Midwest first. We were the first frontier when the pioneers uh, uh, came over the Alleghenies. We were the first along with New England of the Industrial Revolution here. The Depression began here out in farms lands where there were less than years for the rest of the country. Um, we were the rebirth of the American industry uh, during World War II and after, and we had been involved in New England. We got the rest off first. So what happens in this country tends to happen first in the Midwest. So what's going on here now? The rest of the country ought to pay attention to it. I saw some very interesting statistics the other day about the shrinkage of the middle class. That is our class economy with lots of people moving to the top, a whole lot of people moving to the bottom. <coughs> but a real shrinkage in jobs in that area of the mill that the industrial society used to support. Factory jobs, industrial jobs. We had a working class, middle class here, and we don't have it anymore. That is really shrinking. And you see this hourglass picture in the Midwest. You see it in the Northeast also. You don't see it in the South or the West. There, in all of those, the jobs are much more evenly distributed throughout the time. We couldn't tell you exactly why, but it is a bit different here. Yeah. Okay. And I guess even taking a step further, you know, how is the rural Midwest different from small parts of Europe, maybe um, Latin America, other parts of Asia? It may be just a rural versus urban thing. Oh, absolutely is, yes. Um, if the global era is a um, metro era, if, it's, if, it's, if globalization is concentrated in cities, that's not just happening in the United States. It's happening all over the world. You see this in third world countries where people are pouring into Mexico City or Lima or Lagos just to get out of the villages. You certainly see this in China where people are moving in Shanghai. You see it in India with crowding Mumbai and Chennai and places like that. You see it in Europe. Yes, people are moving out, moving into the cities. And some places, Europe being an example, with the common agricultural policy, uh, they have more of a safety net for rural areas that's being felt. But yes, everywhere, cities are growing, rural areas are emptying out. And this is a process that is probably not going to end. Rural areas existed for one era only in that era of Sad because I grew up in one of those so I feel like it's one of those areas that so I feel a good deal of nostalgia. Well, one last general question. 
what's your next book going to be? And I couch that in, I believe you wrote a book 10 or 15 years ago, Crying the Demise of Chicago. This book, in a sense, creates some dismay for the Midwest. Are you a prophet of doom? And so should we worry about the next book you're writing? And on the other hand, Chicago come back. So in a sense, maybe you played a role in Chicago's big tournament. I did a big series for the Tribune about 25 years ago called City on the Just that. The, all the industry was gone. Um, you know, really look like those things just sliding into the lake. Um, this was the era of the city that works, a lot of boosterism. The Tribune was especially involved in this. The Tribune published this on the front page, this series, a great deal of fear and trepidation. Um, we got a conversation going here. You know, I would love to stand up and say I had something to do with the recovery since then. I, you know, that's, that, that's really stretching it. But talking about your problems in an honest way doesn't hurt. <clears throat> the book I did uh, about 10 years ago was on the first world nation uh, of Europeans and Japanese and what globalization is likely to do to us. It was some reportage, some prophecy. And a lot of that, the, you know, the continuing problems of the middle class here in this country um, have certainly uh, come to pass. Um, but I'm hoping now that what we can do, what, what this book does, is just some of us, yes, we are living in the global economy, the old industrial age that supported us for the last hundred years gone. We have to think in new ways. Um, and we have to do things in a, in a new way. Maybe we can bring people together to talk about these issues and hopefully do something else. Sounds good. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Much appreciated.